ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, team, for leading us today. Beautiful to be in the presence of the Lord in worship. It's always good uh, to see your faces and to be uh, reconnecting with so many of you. It's, it's been a blessing to do that over these recent weeks and a special sweetness as we are gathered together. I want to ask you a question as we uh, get ready for the message time today. When you are planning a trip and you sit down in your car or truck or whatever you drive and you've got to get from where you are to wherever you're going, maybe a few towns away, a few states away, whatever, how do you make that plan? Like how do you actually chart that course? Let me hear a little bit of response from you. How do you actually do it? I didn't get any of that. Yeah, yeah, okay, Rand McNabb. So how many of you use like the good, like how many of you, first of all, how many of you have used the good old-fashioned like road atlas, flip to the state where you're trying to get to? Or, yes, that's when I first started driving, that was what you did. I mean, that was what you had. You know, if you were well-prepared, you had the fairly updated map atlas kind of thing in the car, but that's not the way probably a lot of you do it now. How many of you remember then things evolved to... You print out certain directions, you know, you did the MapQuest deal, and you print out that thing, and then you, you didn't have to go through all it. You had, like, the, the course charted for you, and that worked awesome as long as you followed it. But when you miss that exit, you're like, what do I, just throw them out. I mean, you, it's, it's hard to get back on track when you missed it. Nowadays, many of us do it a little differently. It's odd to think I will get in a car to drive states away having not even considered the route that I'm going to take before I just go like, uh, how do I get to uh, whatever, Tampa? And then my phone just tells me. It's really a, a wonderful kind of thing. You know, most of us have, many of you have grown up in the era of, of GPS and, and phones that just kind of tell you where you want to go. And it's actually kind of amazing to have that kind of dynamic interface when you really compare the two. Because in the old days, when you got off track, you had to recalibrate somehow. It didn't matter if you were in the middle of a busy city or interstate or whatever. You had to figure out, I missed my exit, what do I do now? I think about... How many spats have been saved by devices like this? Because if you don't know, that was a source of significant tension, at very, whether it was your friend or your spouse or whatever, trying to figure out what are we going to do now in real time. And now you just get rerouted. It's kind of nice. I was thinking about this a little bit because I was in Harrisburg this week uh, going to the district office. I can get there pretty much with my eyes closed for our, our denominational Eastern PA district. I have to go down there fairly frequently. But when I first started traveling down there, it seemed like I didn't have a smartphone at that time. This was years ago. And it seemed like every time I would go, I would, I would get construction or diverted or detoured or something would happen. And then I would have to like, call, I would be lost. I would be like, I, I, don't, I don't know where I am, you know. And I remember our district superintendent, she was really good at, at directions and stuff. She, she, like, saved me at least once or twice. I remember calling and saying, like, I got diverted, and now I don't actually even know how to get to where I'm at or whatever. I don't think I'm too far. And she said, just tell me what you see. I was like, okay, there's a barn and a school. She's like, I know right where you are. <laughs> Quarter mile, you're going to take life. It was awesome. Turn-by-turn turn navigation. Last week... 
in addition to some references to the $6 million man, which was sort of fun, we looked at examples in the Old Testament, Joseph, Moses, Job, Elijah. We looked at examples in the New Testament, Peter, Paul, James, John, talking about the fact that life does not always go up and to the right, and yet that God is with us in the mountaintops and the valleys. We talked about every valley being an opportunity to experience the restoration of God, which is why we're calling this series Rebuild, Experience God's Restoration. I I think if I were to draw these two sort of examples together, I would say that in the twists and turns of life, it is good to know that when we get off course, that we are not working with sort of old school, let's just try to figure out now how to reinvent. We actually get the navigation of God to help keep us on track. And so as we move through this journey, practically speaking, it's a journey that we're still on. As we regather, as we rebuild, as we listen to the voice of the Spirit, what is Jesus doing now? What does he have for us? And I'm encouraged when I think about the fact that we have a very good navigator for this journey. This series, Rebuild, we hope will echo in your heart and in your spirit, in your family, in your direction with uh, 1 Peter 2.5, which says that you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we got this series kind of kicked off last week. Today, uh, I want to I ask us to consider in this same theme of rebuild, experience the restoration of God. But today I want to specifically look at this notion of rebuilding in humility. Rebuilding in humility. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to look at a passage beginning in verse 8. And I know some of you are thinking, Isaiah chapter 9, isn't that like, you know, Christmas unto us a child? Is like, wait, isn't this? Uh, yes, that is uh, we, where we go at Christmas time. But this particular passage we're going to look at today begins in verse 8. And I'm going to actually give a relatively long setup. Uh, we're going to give a little bit of sort of observation over this particular area of Scripture, try to give some good context for it, because I think it's really important. And then I'm going to actually give some relatively brief practical application. And then what, what I'd like us to do today is really kind of end the service in a posture of humility. You know, to actually take the time, it'd be very easy to kind of give intellectual assent the idea to say, sure, we got to rebuild some things and we got to do that in humility. Let's all go do that. But then to actually do that in a spirit of humility, wherein together we can say, Lord, we need you. We need something beyond the sum of our best efforts if we are going to be the church that God desires for us to be. And so, in a practical way, we're going to have some opportunity to just do that in prayer at the end of the message today. So, just to give you a forewarning, we hope that you'll be able to. Join us in that corporate statement. Lord, help us rebuild in humility. So Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read a few verses. We'll take a pause. We're going to pick up on that, so keep your finger there. It's an interesting passage, and this is what Isaiah writes in verse 8 and following. He says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. 
And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Let's pause there. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. We're going to come back to that, so don't go too far away from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, At the beginning of this calendar year, our denominational president, John Stumbo, he shared a monthly update video in which he made an observation that I thought was, was really pertinent. It wasn't like a main point he was making. He was just making this observation, and it was this, that this year, 2021, has begun with a great deal more humility in our planning than the year before. Now, he wasn't saying it in a condescending way. He wasn't saying it in a judgmental way. He was just simply making the observation that many of the plans that we are making now are being done with a great deal more humility than before. It took me to James chapter 4. I was thinking about this passage where James writes this. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. What a a powerful and pertinent truth for us. So John Stumbo is basically saying, yeah, it just seems like we're We're making plans with a great deal more humility. And I think that's a good thing. If the Lord wills, and he's going to show us, we're going to go after some things together. Humility. Rebuilding in humility. Everybody likes to talk about vision. People love to get excited about fearless leadership, perseverance, we tell, rah, you know, real kind of get you pumped up sort of stories. We're going to take the next hill and the different things that we're going to do. And all of those things are good. In fact, we're going to need all of that in the coming seasons, the coming weeks, months, and years. But I think humility may be the most important and often overlooked ingredient when it comes to rebuilding. Humility is defined as the quality or condition of being humble. It is a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance or rank. I want to give you a little backstory to this passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 9. First of all, the, the book of Isaiah is a, is a fascinating one on a couple of fronts. Um, it is the first book of prophecy that we come across in the Old Testament. It is quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament prophet. Uh, This was something that was new to me, and as I have asked other people, and they're like, yeah, we've known that forever. I was like, I don't know how I went this long without knowing this, but the book of Isaiah is kind of referred to as a miniature Bible. Have you heard this? There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. There's 66 books in the Bible itself. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah really focus on the judgment of God, the, the, some of these difficult things that God is working, but also the promise 
of a Messiah, very similar to the first 39 books of the Bible that we call our Old Testament. The last 27 chapters focus on the hope found in the coming Savior, very similar to the 27 books of the New Testament. And the book actually ends, the book of Isaiah actually ends with the restoration of Zion and the promise that all will be made new. So the book of Isaiah has been called a miniature version of the Bible itself. That's where we find ourselves today. The prophet Isaiah lived in a time of the divided kingdom. So this is after the people of God, the tribes of Judah, were essentially split into two groups with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And Isaiah was known in the royal court of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, In fact, he lived there and served there during the time of five of their kings, including the fifth one, who was Manasseh, who uh, it is said had Isaiah killed. During his lifetime, around 740 B.C., Isaiah saw the northern kingdom, that would be Israel, fall to the Assyrians and the people there taken into captivity. It actually didn't happen immediately, but it happened over a space of 10 to 20 years, depending on how you uh, examine the history. But he was kind of privy to all of that. And it is specifically over the judgment of Israel to the north that Isaiah is writing this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. So that gives you a little bit of background, gives you a little bit of understanding of where we are. Uh, It seems that there was a, a missed opportunity, if you will. So our theme today is rebuilding in humility. It seems that there was a missed opportunity for the people of God, specifically the northern kingdom of Israel, to learn what it was to embrace humility in the midst of tragedy or difficulty. In short, they got shook. They got shook. There was internal rebellion that then led to external threats coming in, and all of a sudden, at a, at a societal level, God's people found themselves very much shaken up. Well, we know as we examine Scripture that every shaking is an opportunity for revelation. It's a Hebrews 12 kind of concept that everything that can be shaken in this world will eventually be shaken. So the people of God, they're getting shaken up. Every shaking is a revelation. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And the shaking reveals the true foundations that you're building on. So this happens to us even at a, at a micro level all the time. When things get shaken up, you will quickly find what kind of foundation you are building on. And sometimes we find that we're really not building on the right foundations. We're putting all of our trust or all of our hope here when in fact God is saying, I want you to be trusting me. So at a national level, this is happening. Isaiah is observing and giving commentary on it. Now here's the beauty. We find when our foundations are wrong, and I think often they probably are, at least to some extent. We miss the mark fairly frequently. But when our foundations are wrong, the proper response is repentance. It's, it's humility. It's an ability, and this is actually built in to the gospel. This is a beautiful reality that we live in, that when our foundations are wrong and we're, it's revealed in the shaking, we have the opportunity to turn back to the Lord. And that was precisely the opportunity that God's people were missing as Isaiah is pronouncing this over them. So they missed it. God was working, and I think it's, it's critical that we understand this, God was working and active even in the tragedy. 
in the unrest, in the unsettling, in the shaking. God was actually in that, and he was calling his people back to himself, but they missed it. This is the essence of humility. Again, our title here today is Rebuilding with Humility, so we don't want to miss it. If you're wondering, maybe I'm kind of reading into that too much, just, just read the next few verses, and this is actually what you see, uh, sort of what I'm saying in summary. Verse 11, but the Lord raises uh, the adversaries of Rezin against him. He stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch branch and read in one day. This is when that judgment that was happening over a period of many years with God saying, I'm trying to turn the hearts of the people back, finally came to full fruition. And that note about head and tail is actually an interesting one, that the civic as well as religious influence of God's people was essentially curtailed in one moment. Now, I'd like to just try to think practically with you on this passage for a moment, because this is one where, in preparation for preaching this, I felt like the Lord was leading me here, going in this direction and unpacking it, and it was one of those experiences in, in which I found myself saying, I get where we're going with this. And then the more I studied, I was like, I think I get where we're going with this. And then I was like, I'm actually not quite sure where we're going with this. Because there's, there's a lot to this. What can we learn about God's people? How do we apply that in our current reality? Is there a message for our current society? Is there a message for our current church? Several years ago, if this passage is sounding familiar to some, it was highlighted in Jonathan Kahn's book, The Harbinger. Did anybody read that? Anybody read The Harbinger? Okay, follow some of his stuff. He observes that the quoting of Isaiah 9.10, which is frequently done, in times of national tragedy or economic hardship, is actually a problematic statement of our nation's spiritual state. So the statement, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stone. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. You can actually go online or wherever, and you can see politicians invoking this as a rallying cry to the people in times of economic hardship or societal unrest, whether it's regional, local, national, etc., and so people will kind of go to this and, you know, secular politicians saying, hey, look, let me share an encouragement with you. The bricks have fallen, but we're going to put stones up. These trees are uprooted. We're going to put others in their place. The problem with that is these are words of defiance. They sound like optimistic future reconstruction, but actually it's a statement of defiance. We would rather do it ourselves. This is what God's people are originally saying and what Isaiah was calling them out for. We would rather do this ourselves than humble ourselves and submit to the work of God. And our message today is on rebuilding with humility. When we as a people rebuild without humility, and we're talking about repentance, turning to God as our foundation, this was the posture that led to the downfall of God's exiled people. This is the posture that Khan and others would note as indicative of our national posture in many ways. Now, 
In case you think, ah, I know where he's going with this message, I'll say it this way. If that target, kind of the ills of society, etc., was the target that I was shooting for today, in some ways, yes, it would be hard to miss, but it's not the one I'm aiming at this morning with the message of rebuilding in humility. I actually want to focus on the church because we are God's people. We are grafted into his family. We are called to represent him in our world as we live out our mission, his mission for his glory. How are we called to rebuild with humility? I guess I'll say it this way. You know, I interact with Christians a lot. And it seems like we get so focused sometimes. We get so focused and we spend so much time and energy assuring ourselves of the repenting that other people need to do. Yeah, we're just so convinced of like the, the brokenness out there and this is a mess. And, that I, and yeah, yeah, we have a lot of messes in our society. We have a lot of messes in our world and we can get ourselves really stirred up about that. And yet, the message to God's people here was instead of taking this on yourself, just look at what I'm trying to do in you. And I think sometimes for the church, we need to just be reminded, don't miss out on what God is saying to us simply because you live in a world that is messy. The church has been shaken too. How can we rebuild with humility? So if Jesus is truly the head of his church, and we believe that he is, and if he calls us to join him in his work, and we believe that he does, then we are going to be okay, and we are going into a new season, not by our own strength, not by our own ingenuity, but in humility looking to him. In other words, as we rebuild, the last thing we would want to offer ourselves or our world is the sum of our best efforts. There is something transcendent at the core of who we are and what we do that's so vitally important because we need the transcendent work of God to anchor us as we rebuild in humility. That may be one of the longest introductions I've ever given to a sermon. But now I've got three points I'd like to share with you, each of them about 40 minutes. As we embrace God's work of restoration, humility causes us to rebuild with a different kind of emphasis. Let me give you sort of three examples of, of why I think that statement is important. That, that how we rebuild really matters. And instead of, you know, the, the people of God saying, you know, this has happened, this has been broken down, we're just going to rebuild it, we're going to do it. But they missed the work of God in the midst of it. It was said that they were being arrogant in that. So how do we rebuild with humility? Um, I'm going to give us three. The first is this, kind of where we put our emphasis. Less emphasis on that which is temporary. Greater emphasis on that which is eternal. Now, you would probably say, that makes sense. Yeah, whatever, let's move on. But, but, but stick with it for a minute. Stick with it for a minute. I was thinking about in Hebrews 11, how you've got this great kind of hall of faith, the people of the, of the uh, Bible who are hailed for their faith and, and following the Lord, and specifically uh, noted is Abraham. And it says in verse 11 of Hebrews 8, I'm sorry, verse 8 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive an inheritance. 
And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That picture of Abraham walking by faith, I think is such a critical one for us if we are going to rebuild in humility. Because essentially it says this, there is a temporary and there is an eternal. And he navigated the temporary but looking forward to see that which was eternal. Now sometimes when we struggle to get our eyes and our energy and our minds and all of our attention out of the temporary, I wonder if it's because our tents are just a little too nice. You know, we, we put roots down so deeply in that which is temporary that we struggle sometimes to keep sight of that which is eternal. Church, remember that we are passing through. We are making our way through. We are sojourners in a foreign land. But Abraham said he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's eternal. So I started thinking about this. I started kind of letting the Holy Spirit kind of dig into my own soul to think, ask, ask the question, what are the ways in which I overemphasize the temporary? And I actually started coming up with a lot of them. I, I think I could share a whole bunch. I'll, I'll whittle down to just a couple. One of the things that came to mind is some of us are in the process of raising children, right? You're raising kids. Some of you have raised kids. Some of you are seeing grandkids and second generation, third generation, all of that kind of stuff. Some of you have not come into that place, but let me just use that as an example. Not everybody's calling, but let me use it as an example. What am I reinforcing in the lives of the children that I am raising? What are my greatest hopes and fears for them? What legacy am I leaving? Because as a, as a parent, you know, you, you want the best for your kids. You want them to do well. You want them to get A's and B's instead of B's and C's. You want them to be able to excel. You want them, you want them to be able to, to find a good career path and, and to enjoy what they love and all those kind of things. So you spend a lot of times, but how much do we spend emphasizing things that are very much temporary? What legacy are we leaving? You know, I want my kids to be happy. I want my kids to be balanced. I want my kids to be above average in every way that they possibly can. But I want my kids to love Jesus. See, I want, my, I want my kids to have a sense of his calling on their life. I want my kids to be able to recognize the voice of the good shepherd. Those are like eternal things. And not everybody gets that. Not everybody goes after that. Not everybody, a lot of people, a lot of times we don't even think about those sort of things. But investing in that which is eternal. I'm going to give another example here. Sort of running the risk, I guess, in some ways. I think part of the reason that we wrestle so much with the political arena is that we're just way too focused on temporary instead of eternal things. I, I've noted that some of my dear Christian friends that I love 
but seem to have a four-year appointment to lose their joy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just, they're going to get so worked up on one side or the other. It almost doesn't matter. It's just this, this idea that I'm going to get so, so bought in and so frustrated and so whatever about this thing. But it's temporary. I mentioned that Isaiah, you know, he, he served under five different kings um, in Judah. I mentioned this last fall when we were talking about a couple of things in preparation for the, for the uh, presidential election that was happening, uh, and just noting that there was the, the most evil king in Judah's history was Manasseh, like 54 years or whatever. I don't know why the most evil king was also the longest running king in their, in their history. And yet when I think about how worked up we can get over a four-year or a two-year period of time and then compare that to the bigger picture of things, it's almost laughable. And then put that in the context of what God has in store for us. Listen, the fact of the matter is you are living, if you are in Christ, you are living for a kingdom that will never fade. So don't invest your heart and soul and mind and strength in a political fight over the next four or two years. I mean, I've been around enough of these laps to realize, you know, this is kind of what happens. Somebody gets in office by making certain promises and gets people rallied up, and then when those things don't happen, two years later, they're going to lose a bunch of seats in the House and the Senate because people get dissatisfied with what happens, and the cycle repeats and continues. And we get stirred up about it. We get worried. But we're living for a kingdom that will never fade. So don't invest your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength in a political fight. Is it important? Yes. But is it eternal? Another example when I think about temporary versus eternal, I'll just sort of lump these together. Think about the things that I invest money in, energy in. Think about profession, things that I invest my, my time in. I would say this. We have to tend to the temporary things. We've got to tend to the temporary things. You've got to pay your mortgage. Uh, You've got to mow your lawn. You've got to fix things when they break. You've got to do all that kind of stuff. But, but so much of that, it is temporary. So tend to the things that are temporary, but invest in the things that are eternal. This is a rebuilding in humility kind of thing. We want to have less emphasis on the temporary, greater emphasis on that which is eternal. I experienced that this weekend when uh, I spent some time tearing apart a dryer uh, that was broken. And I noted I say a dryer as if I have multiple dryers. We only have one dryer, which is why it needed to be fixed. So I had to tend to that. Uh, it was doing that thing, um, incidentally, if you're, if you're wondering what, what problem it was having, it was doing the thing where when you turn it on, it sounded like there was a witch being burned in oil. It was quite distressing, scaring the neighbor's children. So my wife said, you gotta, you gotta fix that. So, so YouTube and I fixed it, and, um, which, was, which was great. It's good to get intimately kind of connected to a to a, an appliance that I need. This is, this is tending the temporary. It is tending to the temporary. And you will do that dozens of times this week. You will tend to temporary things. And you need to tend to temporary things. But invest in the things that are eternal. Now I know some of you are thinking right now, that I've just given you the get out of jail free card the next time somebody asks you to do something around the house that you don't want to do. And you're going to say, honey, I would love to do that. 
but I need to be more invested in eternal things. And that's just temporary. Good luck with that. Let me know how it works. Tend to that which is temporary, but invest in the things that are eternal. I, I could come up with probably another half dozen easily things in which uh, the Holy Spirit might give some, some direction, correction, etc. cetera, um, but allow him to do that in your life. Second point is this. Less emphasis on our efforts, greater emphasis on God's work. Less emphasis on our efforts, greater emphasis on God's work. Last week, we talked about God's presence with us in the mountaintop and the valley experiences of life. This is such a vital key for us in the rebuilding process that we know that God is with us. But church, understand that the true beauty of the church is not in the efforts that we put into it. Rather, at the center of this very broken group of individuals is a foundational work of God. This is the transcendent reality in which we partake when we gather for worship and fellowship and joining in the ongoing work and mission of Christ. And it's a good thing that we are not rebuilding to the sum of our own best efforts. Because that's not actually what we need. And it's not actually what our world needs. But there is a transcendent reality that we get to tap into as the body of Christ. It's God's finished work. It's what he has done. It's what he is doing. It's what he will do and then what he calls us to join in with him. Philippians 2.13, I love this. It says, it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's doing something here. And if he's not, we don't have anything good to rebuild. You see, what, what, what the people in Isaiah's time were missing, even with what seemed like a very optimistic view of the future, this has been broken down, we're going to rebuild it, but they missed out on the deeper work of what God was trying to do. He was trying to bring hearts back to a place of humble repentance because there was something a whole lot more important than bricks and stones and trees. So there's less emphasis on our efforts greater emphasis on God's work. Incidentally, this is incredibly freeing. It's incredibly freeing. Sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves because we have to do it right. We gotta represent well. We gotta work hard. We gotta do more, etc. We have the joy of actually saying, we're gonna figure out what God is doing. We're gonna join him in that work. And that's actually our last point. Point three is less emphasis on control Greater emphasis on collaboration. Now, how do we get to collaboration? I, I want to make sure I say this. I'm not sure I said it as thoroughly in the first service as I needed to. The first thing we do is we submit to the lordship of Christ. That's first and foremost. That's foundational. We submit to the lordship of Christ, and then there's something amazing that happens as we as a people learn to do that. Now, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, actually, as we submit to him, he says, now I want you to join me in the work that I am doing, and I want you to work with one another in collaboration with this bigger goal in mind. Um, speaking of collaboration, um, I thought I would just mention this publicly. I am going to take uh, some weeks 
and not preach um, for two reasons. Number one, uh, actually, I'll give you three reasons. Number one is that we've got a few people that I really would like you to hear uh, from in this series. So some staff, some other leaders, uh, our district superintendent who's going to be coming in as well. So I'm going to be intentional about kind of getting out of the way. Number two, reason that I'm doing that is that I've got a handful of things uh, that I really sense the Lord saying, I need you, I want you to focus as the lead pastor of this church in this area, this area, in this area. So if you're worried that I'm just out working on my golf game, I probably won't be doing any of that. Um, sometimes people ask me, you know, I didn't hear you preaching, so you must be loafing or something like that. I'm going to be working hard, but in some other areas. Uh, the third thing that I will mention is that whenever I'm not preaching for a couple of weeks or whatever, people will say, are you candidating in other churches? Are you, are you leaving us? And I'm not 100% sure if they're hoping I say yes or no. Um, but that's not what I'm doing. Um, in case you don't see me preaching up here for you know, a few weeks, uh, that's why. So I wanted to share that with you. But in the spirit of collaboration, uh, that there is working together that we can do that will cause us to be stronger as a church. Uh, I've also sensed that as I'm wrestling with a handful of uh, what I would call sort of tough questions and issues, part of what I'm hearing the Holy Spirit say is you need to listen better. You need to, you, me, you need to listen better. And sometimes that's hard when you're doing a lot of talking. So collaboration. Um, Let me give you a practical way that you can collaborate as you submit to the Lordship of Christ and work together. I'll give you a real practical one. Um, First of all, Jesus said in, in Matthew 6 when his disciples said, teach us how to pray, Um, He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, I'm going to teach you how to pray. And I'm amazed how how quickly we forget that this was Jesus' kind of model for teaching us. That there is a humble submission to him. So we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. I wonder what the effects are of a church full of people, multiple congregations, a community of churches saying, you know, we are asking God to do something significant, bigger than the sum of our abilities or efforts, and we are humbly asking him to do the work that only he can do in our community, in our nation, bringing revival, etc. I wonder what the effects of that would be. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So we're going to call you to that in in a practical way that you can participate in doing that Uh, Some of our local churches are banding together, our city church pastors banding together in the 247, 24-7 prayer challenge, and we have a a, uh, website here. Write this down because I want to encourage you to participate in this. We've done things like this before. You sign up for an hour and you say, what we're trying to do is throughout our community actually cover every hour of the week and praying fervently that revival would come and praying until revival does come. Praying in faith, believing that God has things he wants to do. This is, 
This, in some ways, is the best example I can think of of rebuilding in humility because it's us saying, we can't do it. God, we need you to do it. We need you to move. We need your hand to move. And so we want to encourage you to be a part of that, to claim an hour. We're going to try to focus our congregation on Wednesday, the 24-hour kind of block of Wednesday. And so whether you're a middle-of-the-night prayer or an early morning prayer or whatever, afternoon, lunchtime prayer, we want to encourage you to claim some hours at that website, and we're going to try to fill that up. If you can't pray on a Wednesday because of scheduling or other things, then pick another hour. That's no problem at all. Uh, But we're going to focus on that, praying 24-7, asking the Lord to move. So we're going to conclude this now. Uh, We're going to give you an opportunity to, uh, to join us as we pray. Worship team can come. And get ready to lead us. Let me, let me ask you to consider this. First of all, why don't you stand together? This is a sign of, of togetherness. Church, as, as we work through a season of rebuilding on many fronts, we are inviting the restoration of God over our lives, over our families, over our community, over our church. As we rebuild with humility, we want to emphasize and have discernment to emphasize that which is eternal, to recognize God's work and the work that he desires to do, to collaborate with one another, and ultimately with our good shepherd. I think a great prayer for us would simply be to say, May God do a work beyond the sum of our best efforts. I think that's the essence of rebuilding in humility. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to to sort of make that statement corporately as you are able and and willing to do so. Um, If you would would come uh, forward, and incidentally, in this series, we're going to give lots of opportunities for prayer time. So let's... Let's try to get comfortable with it as best as you can. I know for some people it sort of feels like, oh, you know, praying in church, that feels really weird. And Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. So you're going to have to adjust on that. Um, but let me, let me call you to, to pray. And, and um, again, in the spirit of humility, you know, it very well could be a good time to just be like on our knees at the altar, the mercy seat. You know, we're asking God to do something beyond the sum of our efforts. So humble ourselves and do that. If your knees are lousy, mine are not so good. Sit on the front seat. Um, But that's a posture of prayer that I felt to call you to today. So come on down. If that's your heart, if something's stirring on it, just come on down. And Jesus says we wait on you right now We are going to just acknowledge, and we are acknowledging that what we need and what our world needs is something greater than the sum of our best efforts. And so we come. We pray, Jesus, that there would be an outpouring of your spirit. I I just believe, God, you, you look for humble hearts. You look for humble hearts, God. So God, I pray that you would find humble hearts here.
Lord, we acknowledge some of the hardships that we are enduring are probably your way of shaking up some things, causing us to examine our foundations. We recognize, Lord, that we don't always build well. And so I just pray that there would be just a, a shifting, just a sweet shifting. I pray, God, that we would not fear repentance. That was what you were calling your people to. You're saying, Lord, I just, you're saying, I'm just calling my people back to me. And even when I need to shake up their world to do so, I'm just calling them back. So, Lord, I pray that you would see hearts that are running to you. Lord, I'm struck with this truth that this is, in many ways, this is the heart of the gospel. Where we stop saying, I'm going to stand on my own best efforts. And in humility, we receive your best efforts. So, Lord, our prayer today, very simply, we're asking you to do a work beyond the sum of our best efforts. We look forward to joining you in that work. But, Lord, in prayer, we're asking that you would move. So hear our prayers today, God. See the condition of our hearts. Pour out your spirit over your people. And hear us as we respond in worship.